All right, please join me in prayer. Thank you, this, uh, thank you, Lord. Um, this is a precious time for us to look into your word, um, to study it, to um, hear your thoughts and your voice speaking to us. And um, we know that um, your word is active and powerful and applicable. And so we pray that we would listen attentively. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so um, Ming, is your daughter okay? Is somebody watching? Okay, good. Um, so first, let me just say to the recording, uh, we've had technical difficulties the last two times, two lessons. So uh, this time I'm recording two separate devices. <laughs> so hopefully that will be sufficient um, and then we won't have technical difficulties moving forward. Um, so we're going through the whole Bible book by book. And um, long ago, I've abandoned my pretension to get it through in 10 lessons. Um, but that's okay. Um, you know, uh, we're going to go through each book uh, at the pace that uh, is fitting. And my intention is to give you a flavor and a sense of each book of the Bible. And then um, for that not to be the end of it, but for it to be a launching pad for you to read the Bible on your own, there's so much to explore and understand, and um, truly, you know, every passage is a whole universe of meaning and depth and application, and you can dive and swim in it for a long time. Um, I just wanted to do a quick follow-up on the idea of Christian freedom from uh, Galatians chapter 5 from last week, which is I said that um, Christian freedom is freedom from, but also freedom to. Right? So it's freedom from the slavery of the law, the oppression of the law, the anxiety, the um, constraints, um, the constant feeling of inadequacy that the law imposes on us. So it's freedom from, release from, but it's also a freedom to, a freedom to love one another, um, to fulfill the law, which is love. And so I gave that example that um, when I was in youth group, people used to talk about Christian freedom as I have the freedom to listen to rock music in the car or I have the freedom to um, go to a pool hall and play pool. Um, and that's true enough, but there was something missing in that equation, which is it's not just freedom from, but it's freedom to. And so you should not abuse your freedom, for example. Um, and if you use your freedom only selfishly to only indulge in your own desires, you're actually violating the very concept of Christian freedom, right? Christian freedom is always to love others. So I just want to say that. I think I tried to say that, but I forgot the last time. All right, so let's launch into Ephesians. Ephesians is uh, the first of Paul's uh, prison letters. He wrote four prison letters, um, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and uh, Philemon. This is when he was imprisoned in Rome. Um, only Philippians really talks about his imprisonment in an intense way, although all four of those letters mentions his imprisonment, right? Um, Ephesians is a general letter. Um, it doesn't address, or it doesn't seem to address a specific problem. Um, it's sort of a twin letter to Colossians. So that's a little bit of an interesting thing. If you read Colossians, uh, one of these days you should read uh, Ephesians and then Colossians back to back. And you will notice remarkably similar language, ideas, format, structure. Um, there's a lot, a lot of active discussion about what's going on there. I think what it is, is that Paul is, it's so deeply embedded in him, the, the, the idea of the Christian life and what is the gospel, that it comes out in similar ways, but in different, with, you know, variations. 
in different letters. So um, what I want to look at today is a passage in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, 4.17 through 32. It's one of my favorite, favorite passages in the Bible. Um, and it's Paul's instruction, practical instruction on Christian living. So we're going to look at that. Um, Ephesians, there's six chapters. It's roughly structured. The f- chapters 1, 2, and 3 is about our salvation. 4, 5, and 6 is about, okay, now what? How do we live out that salvation? How do we live as Christians? So let me read the text for you. It's quite long, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have, be- and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you, ha- you have heard of- about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off the old self, okay, so I'll make a mental note of that, we're going to talk about that. To put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the, to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. All right. Um, so the first thing is I want to focus on the first paragraph is this idea of the old self and new self. Um, so what is the old self and the new self? It tells us several things. It tells us that uh, becoming a Christian is involves a change that is not just incremental. It's not just uh, parts of your life, right? So he could have said, um, uh, stop with the old habits and begin new habits. Or start, uh, stop the old thoughts and uh, think some new thoughts. Each of those is true, <laughs> um, but he uses a more totalizing concept. He says, stop with the old self and begin the new self. And so it's a radical change. It's a complete transformation. It's not just habits or thoughts or anything like that or any one thing like that. It's the entire self. It's a completely different person. And um, if I could sort of like, you know, give you a really sloppy illustration, it would be as if becoming a Christian means um, your friends uh, see you now as a believer and they're like, who are you? You're a completely different person. You look different. Um, I don't even, there's no like continuity, right? There's just a complete break, right? Um, that's the kind of idea that uh, Paul here is talking about. The second thing is it's not just outward behavioral change that Paul is talking about, but it's an inward transformation, right? Um, 
Because notice the behaviors, and he does focus on a list of behaviors. That's the second paragraph. The behaviors, the new behaviors, follows the first paragraph, which is about all about the inner life. Your thoughts, your desires, um, what's going on in your heart. So the old self, new self transformation goes comprehensively deep down into your innermost being. The third thing I want you to uh, notice is this language he uses of put off, put on. Put off, put on is the language that you use for clothing. So he's depicting it as the old self is like a set of clothing you take off, and then the new self is a new set of clothing you put on. Um, And so what's going on there? Um, He's basically talking about a decisive change. No half measures. You can't halfway take off your clothes <laughs> and be halfway naked. Um, you can't just take off your pants and leave your shirt on and then put on new pants. Do you know what I mean? It's take off all your old clothes. Like so imagine this, right? Imagine you go to the gym and you work out, it's you know, you do some super intense workout, you're drenched in sweat. Um, actually, here's a better example. You do an OCR, right? You do an, op- what is it? Optical course race? So you do like Spartan or something, and then you're like tough mudder, right? You're just like rolling around in the mud. You, you're bruised, you're cut, you're, you look disgusting. You come home, and then what does it mean to take off your old clothes and put on your new clothes? You can't do it halfway. <laughs> you can't just take off one shirt or like put off the shirt just over one arm. It's just not going to work. It has to be complete, total, right? So notice he doesn't use another metaphor like build the the, uh, the new self, you know, tear down the old self or grow the new self because all of those are a little bit organic or part way. Um, it's sort of like changing teams. Yes, Tracy? Sorry, can I interrupt class for one second? Sure. Does anyone have a, for some reason, Um, it's sort of like um, changing teams, right? So um, another analogy I would give is imagine you belong to Team Blue and then now you're going to belong to Team Red. So take off Team Blue's uniform, put on Team Red's uniform. It's a complete switch. Do you, do you, do you see what I'm saying? No half measures. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the old self and a little bit about the new self to give you a sense of what Paul's talking about this put off, put on. So what is the old self? He gives lots and lots of descriptions. Let me just highlight a few. Um, The old self was alienated from God. That means to be cut off, separated. You were in rebellion against God. Um, He talks about it as futility of thinking. Futility means um, emptiness. So your life, um, there's a meaninglessness to it because um, you're not connected to uh, the source of all life. Um, there's a hollowness, there's a shallowness in your life. He talks about it as hardness of heart. Um, your heart is unfeeling and hard against God. It isn't soft, it isn't receptive, it isn't repentant. He says um, it was corrupt through deceitful desires. It's an interesting expression, deceitful desires. Um, the desires are lying to you. Um, they're telling you this is life, this is happiness, but it's lying. And then you're being led by those desires. Um, you're being enslaved to those desires. So that's the old self. What is the new self? Paul says it was created in likeness of God. The word likeness there 
is hearkening back to um, the image of God in Genesis 1. Um, it's the idea of a son imitating his father, right? So my sons are in my image, which means, I always tell them, you have to imitate me and copy me um, and grow up into my stature. Um, he talks about it as renewed in spirit of mind. The, the verb renewed there is a present progressive. So you're constantly being renewed, constantly being replenished. New vitality is coming into your life. And not just in your thoughts, because it doesn't say renewed in your mind. It says renewed in the spirit of your mind. So it's talking about the whole direction and theme of your thoughts, not discrete one thoughts, but just the whole tenor of your thoughts. You're being, it's, you're changing and you're being renewed. He says you're to learn Christ. That's an interesting expression. You're not just to learn about Christ. That's true. Learn facts about Him. But you're to learn Him. So it's a deeply relational learning. It's knowing Him, right? The way you know your friend, the way you know your spouse. That produces a life of true righteousness and holiness. So that's the old self, new self. Before we go to the new set of behaviors, any quick questions about old self, new self? So one quick question for Yes. Last week you talked about justification and sanctification. That's right. And justification is when God gives you a new heart. That's right. And it's a replacement. Right. Well, actually, you know, if, let's let's be even more technical, right? Um, oh, this is tough. Okay. Um, let's be even more technical. So the Christian life begins with the call, right? Um, God calls you, and then God intervenes. So everyone hears the call, right? And and then the Bible distinguishes between um, the general call and the effectual call. The general call, everyone hears, but the effectual call is accompanied by the Spirit. And what the Spirit produces is regeneration. I'm going to actually preach on this um, next week. Um, regeneration, another word for that is new life. So you were dead in your sins, you were blind, um, you were slaves to sin, and so the Spirit comes in, and as, as Ezekiel 36 says, takes out your heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh. And then because you have a new heart, um, you respond in faith. Uh, faith is your conscious decision, right? No one, you're not a marionette puppet, but it becomes inevitable as a result of regeneration. You see the beauty of Christ. How can you not bend the knee and bow down before His majesty? But you respond in faith, and then through faith, you're justified. We talked about what justification is. Justification is a verdict. What is remarkable about the gospel, everyone has a doctrine of justification, but almost everyone puts justification at the end of your life as a final verdict, um, a sentence looking at the whole record of your life. Only in Christianity does the verdict come before the performance. Right, So you're justified, you received a verdict of righteousness at the beginning of your Christian life before you've done anything good, which means it had nothing to do with your goodness or works or righteousness. It has everything to do with Christ's righteousness. And then, so this is passive. And this is passive. right? Completely passive. You don't do anything. You just receive. right? Um, can you give birth? Can a baby give birth to himself? No. The baby just gets born. Right? Um, Justified, you just stand there and you receive the verdict. And then there's sanctification. Sanctification is, um, is an active, uh, part of your life. Um, so we talk about this as monergism. It's one work. One work. Um, it's only God doing the work. 
And then we talk about sanctification as synergism. Together work or to work. And so it's you cooperating with God. You still need grace, absolutely. You can only be sanctified by grace, by being connected. As Jesus says, no one can uh, produce fruits unless you abide in me. Um, and so you're, you're connected to Christ, uh, but you're actively working. So if you're lazy, if you're indolent, if you're, um, if you're stiff-necked, you're not going to be sanctified in an intense way. Um, and we'll, and then next we're even going to talk about what, what about the possibility of falling away. Um, so yes, right now, Ephesians chapter 4, we're talking about sanctification. So it's interesting, right? The old self, new self has some component of regeneration and justification, right? Which is, it's a decisive, it's a switch. But it's a switch that you continually inhabit. Um, so going back to the whole um, OCR, you, you just ran the Spartan race. Yes, take off the old self, put on the new self. But it's sort of like this. Every morning you wake up, you look down and you're covered in dirt and mud all over again, right? Or every hour, it just seems like it's you're back to the way you are. So it's a it's a it's a one time thing, but it's a continual doing it again and again and again. Um, but I don't know if that was. I just decided to take one string of what you said and ran. But what 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 were you? But what was your question? So this is about sanctification. Yeah, I mean the distinction between the God doing the work versus us responding to God's work. Yes. So over here. The words are very active. Put off is something that you, you do. do. You do, yes. And it's not one time put off. No. Actually, it's continuous put off. That's why I say it's Well, it's both. It's a one time, it's right? It's a decisive switch, mm-hmm. right? You're no longer um, in the dominion of darkness. You're in the dominion of light, right? You're switching sides to, to a sense, but it's continual, yes. So it doesn't yeah. stop. It doesn't stop. No, it doesn't stop. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, any other questions? Yes. Faith is active. So it's your active response to the call, but only because of regeneration. So one of the, one of the things that is important to understand, let me, let me do with another marker here. Um, I was really ambitious to do three books today. I was so excited, but I'm going to give myself an out and maybe just do two books today. Um, <laughs> but I was so excited about collagens. Alright. Um, so this right here, call to justification can be um, uh, can be let me let me modify that because a lot of times um, you can't identify like a lot of people say when did you become a Christian and they'll say between 2006 and 2008 okay somewhere there right but let's just for the for for the logical simplicity let's just condense it to a single moment the call through justification is a single moment you hear the call, you respond in faith, you receive justification through faith, all of that is a single moment. But theologians, and I think rightly so, logically tease it out, the order. The order is important because if regeneration happens as a response of faith, that means you, that means the Calvinist view is wrong, that you're the one doing the faith, and then in response, then God begins the process of changing your heart and so forth. But because regeneration precedes faith, it's an initiatory work of God, right? Therefore, it is God who chooses you, not the other way around. But in any case, this is the logical order, even though temporally it happens all in one moment. And this is, this is what you actively do. So does the fact that God regenerates you, 
his work first, does that mean faith is just unimportant? It's absolutely critical, and you're doing it. Um, it's your conscious decision. The thing is, his regeneration makes it an effectual call, or another word for it is it's an irresistible grace. God's grace you cannot resist, because it's overwhelming. Because it's sort of like this, right? You're walking towards um, hellfire. You're walking towards a cliff. You're blind. Then God opens your eyes. Are you going to keep walking towards hell? No, right? You're going to be like, what, what am I doing? I was delusional. I'm going to turn to the light. But that turning is an active thing. But enabled by, empowered by God. Does that answer your question? Well, but I, I'm thinking that you, you get regenerated by God. Yes. So actually, that's from God. From God. You didn't do anything. Exactly. You don't participate. So, so like the faith comes naturally. Yes. So therefore, how can you say that can you say that this is from God also? Yes. So Ephesians two eight nine, faith is a gift from God. So faith is a gift, but it's you doing it. But it was enabled by regeneration, empowered by generation. Um, and can you resist? Can you can you be regenerate? Your eyes be opened, and can you then say, "Pass, I reject." You cannot. Uh, but that doesn't negate your your um, self determination. So human beings have will, right? Free will. Always the word free will is a little bit loaded. What do we mean by free? Free in what sense? We're free to do whatever we want, which is sin. <laughs> We're not free to do the righteousness that God demands of us. Um, but then he gives us a new freedom. That's what Christian freedom is. He gives us a new freedom when we're uh, justified. Yes, Ming? Uh, is justification equal to salvation? No. No. Okay. no. That's a great question. So after sanctification, what happens at the end of your life? Glorification, yeah. Yes, you die. Although, <laughs> theologians is all about making careful distinctions. Some will not die. For some, Christ will return, right? And so they'll be taken up um, into his glory. So a glorification, uh, which is that we will see him face to face. And when we see him, we will be like him, right? And so this, um, let me use another color. This is uh, uh, salvation. This. So it's very important. We were saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. So we are not yet saved in a sense. Are we truly saved? Yes in one sense, but no in another. Why is there still indwelling sin in our lives? Why is the world full of brokenness, injustice, and evil? We are awaiting the salvation to come. Because the king is yet is still coming. He's here in the spirit, but he's not here in power and full glory, right? Great question. Any any other comments or questions? Alright. Um, Alright, so let's talk about the new set of behaviors. Um, so he talks about Christian morality, and here I really want to emphasize that Christian Christian morality is a completely different beast than all other moral systems. Okay, it is a radically different paradigm of righteousness and goodness from anything that was in the ancient world and anything that is today in the modern world. I think it is truly unique, truly um, amazing in that sense. Because the way Paul defines Christian righteousness, it's not just the cessation of evil. Yes, it stopped doing evil things. But... Along with that, it's also the active doing, the active participation of goodness. 
And in that sense, it's a fulsome righteousness. It's a comprehensive goodness. So that helps us to now read the Ten Commandments correctly. The Ten Commandments is, almost all of them, is expressed in the negative. Do not murder. But now we understand, in the Christian uh, paradigm of morality, that's the negative. But the negative always, the, uh, the negative always has implicit within it the positive command, which is love. Mm-hmm. And therefore, lovelessness is equivalent to murder. This is what Jesus teaches in the, the Sermon on the Mount, right? And in that sense, when you look at the commandment, do not murder, you, do, you don't pat yourself on the back and say, oh, I don't, I don't have any homicide records under my name. You realize I commit murder every day. There's not a moment, there's not a day when I do not extend to all human beings the dignity and the love and the passion, as Jesus says in the golden, uh, the golden rule, right? Treat others as you would have um, others to treat you. That's an impossibly high, great, righteous standard that no one, no human being can, can live up to. All right. So it's, and then the second thing is it's not just behaviors. Christian morality is not just about behaviors, but it's about motivational reasons. And I want you to notice that. Um, and in this sense, I think Christianity is truly unique. Um, because every other moral system focuses almost exclusively on changing behavior. Because, for a good reason, behavior is changeable. You can change your behavior. But how do you change the heart? Um, and not only that, but to demand heart beyond the, the, re, the, the, the behavior is an impossibly high demand that you... It's, it's, just, it's just impractical. But that's what Christianity is asking for. Um, so let's go through the list, all right? Um, let me try to go through them relatively quickly. Verse 25 Paul says, do not lie. Well, actually, he says, put away falsehood. I think that's an interesting way to put it. Put away falsehood. He's not talking about discreet lies. Although, of course, he is. That is included. He's not just saying, um, oh, you know that one time when you lied? Don't do that. He's talking about all deception, all untruthfulness in your life. Um, are you, in that sense, are you living, like, are you shading the truth? Are you misleading people? Are you presenting um, a different story than the reality? Um, is there any untruthfulness, falseness at all, then you're not obeying this commandment? So that's the negative. What is the positive? Paul says, speak the truth. Not just correct facts. That's not just truth. But it's edifying truth. Because notice his reason. He says, because we are members one of another. So truth is relational truth. Right? Truth, you speak truth to love your brother and sister, to build them up. And therefore, it helps us to understand what a lie is. A lie is not just wrong because um, it violates the do not lie rule. A lie is wrong because it destroys relationships. It destroys um, communal trust. When you lie, you are caught, you're dropping this enormous uh, destructive bomb with shockwaves that harm relationships and harm trust. But on the other hand, what is truth then? Truth isn't just like telling it like it is, getting it off of your chest. Truth is building up community, right? Truth is strengthening the bonds of relationship. Second command, uh, the second thing, uh, Paul says, do not be angry at one another. Actually, he, he doesn't start, do it that way. He starts, how? He says, be angry. <laughs> be angry and do not sin. So he's telling us there's a righteous anger at evil and injustice. And notice the way he expresses it. It's not optional. You must be angry. If you see evil, if you see injustice, your response is to be 
angry. To not be angry is motivated by selfish self-protection, callousness, indifference, right? But when you see evil, when you see injustice, you must be angry. And what does anger do? Anger arouses, anger energizes, it empowers you to, for action. And you should respond with action. Then Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So what is he saying there? I think some people rigidly, literally apply this. So if you get into a fight with your spouse, even if it's 2 a.m. in the morning, you must resolve it before you go to bed. Um, That is not what I think Paul is meaning. He's saying, do not let the sun go down. He's saying, don't let anger fester. Uh, But move as quickly as you can to reconcile, to heal. Don't let the anger just simmer. Um, A lot of times, this is the way we handle anger. We'll just leave it alone, not address it, sweep it under the rug. But actually, um, if you sweep if you sweep some toxic thing under the rug, it just grows and becomes this mold, and then eventually, rah, it'll come out, right? Um, actually, I'm not sure if that's what mold does, but uh, you, you get the picture. <laughs> Notice what Paul says. He says, don't give opportunity to the devil. That's an interesting insight. Satan is our enemy. He wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy specifically the unity and the harmony and the love of the church. Anger is the door that he uses to penetrate and wreak havoc. Yes, Carly. So that's what you're saying about truthfulness, too, yes. right? This is part of the key here. He's the father of lies, right? This is his door in. Anger. To sweep your bitterness under the rug is to pretend that it isn't. Yeah. And to lay up, oh, no, that's not the reality. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, another insight is like, um, I'm forgetting now where in scripture it says this, but love covers over a multitude of sins. So there's two paradigms, love and anger. When you love somebody, they do all kinds of irritating things, little sins, little mistakes, but love covers over a multitude of sins. Because you have such a pot, you have such deep, um, um, what is it, goodwill and charity towards that person, all of these little irritants get sort of like put in perspective. But when you're uh, filled with anger and bitterness against somebody, even the neutral things that they do are strikes against them. And anything good they do, you discount. And then the bad things they do get amplified, right? So it's sort of like a, a lens which you're looking through the relationship, right? Yeah. So let's let's go on. Um, Paul says, do not steal. What should, so that's the negative. What's the positive? He says, do honest work, right? Work with your hands. So, for what reason? So that you can share with those in need. That's an interesting Christian insight. What is the opposite of stealing? The opposite of stealing is sharing with those in need. And so what is the purpose of money? The, the ultimate purpose, the reason why God created money, and God created money, which means money is a good thing, which means making money is good, which means you should enjoy making money, right? Um, um, it's deeply satisfying to be rewarded for good work, right? Input matches output. This is the way God designed us to do. But what is the ultimate purpose of money? The purpose of money is so that we pay our bills. No, so that we could lay up treasure, lay up uh, savings accounts so that uh, we'll retire. That's valid too, but that's not the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason is so that we can love one another. That's the reason why we have money. Um, It gives us an opportunity to care for others. And so this is a radical vision of money and possessions. And if we had the time... This could be a whole Sunday school class. This could be a whole series of Sunday school classes. How should we handle our money? And so if the opposite of, sh- of stealing is sharing, then we could reverse that as well. 
That means if you're not, if you're not sharing, you're stealing. Right? If you're not radically generous with your money, radically generous with the poor, radically generous with those in need, radically generous to God, right, and support, and support gospel ministry, then you're stealing from Him. Right? And you're, you're, you're acting unrighteously with your money. Because your money is not your own. The purpose of money is to share with others. Alright. Paul says, do not speak corrupting words. I remember, um, this verse used to be really, um, important for me, uh, in my youth group when I was in high school. And it was sort of a way of don't cuss. Uh, don't, um, don't drop the F-bomb. Um, that's true, right? Um, but so limited. It's more than that. Um, he's talking about words that tear people down, that destroy community, words full of self-absorption and, and self, uh, self-conceit because we're to use our words to build people up, right? Um, we're to give grace to people. Um, and so we're supposed to wield our words. We're supposed to think of it as these building blocks. We're building the church. We're building the community. We're building friendships. And so all of your conversations with your coworkers, with um, the, the random waitress you see in a restaurant, um, with a cashier, uh, with your friends, your mom, your dad, your family, all of those times are occasions to build people up. That's the purpose of words. Um, and Paul says, notice, as fits the occasion. Three simple, quick words, a universe of meaning. As fits the occasion. It means we are to wield our words with wisdom, with deep understanding. You can say the exact same words to one person and then to another person and it'll build one person up, it'll destroy the other person. Exact same words. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 26 verse 9. Like a thorn in the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. So a proverb is a true saying. A proverb is a word of God, but in the mouth of a fool, it's like a thorn in the hand of a drunkard. Massive damage, right? So it, I think it means, I, I think... What it tells us is it imposes on us this incredibly high demand. Not only are we to speak truthful things, factually correct things, but we're supposed to wait at the right time. You know, the master example is Jesus gives us with Martha and Mary. Lazarus is dead. What does he do? Um, Martha comes, right? Martha is sort of like um, this active, energetic worker. She is saying, if Jesus, if you were here, then my brother would not be dead. And Jesus gives her a whole Bible study on the resurrection. Because that's what she needed at the time. She needed a deep understanding of the doctrine of the resurrection. Mary says the exact same thing. Judah, can you close the door, please? Judah, close the door. Um, Mar- uh, Mary says the exact same words. Lord, if you were here, my brother would not, would not be dead. And what does Jesus do in response? He doesn't say anything. He just weeps. He just cries with Mary because that's what she needed. She didn't need a lecture. She needed tears. I think it's like Jesus is the most remarkable human being who has ever lived. How, how did he know that? How did he have the insight? How did he have the wisdom, the empathy? But that's what we're supposed to do with our words. Finally, we're to love one another. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, full of compassion. And he says we are to forgive one another. Why should we forgive each other? Because we have been forgiven. That's the motivational reason. Um, any questions on on that? Wowzers. Okay. Um, any questions on uh, the, the the set of Christian behaviors? Okay. Um, the feeling you should feel, I think, whenever we look, even in a cursory way, way at, at Christian morality, is multiple sensations. You should feel rightly overwhelmed. 
Um, if you're not overwhelmed, uh, I'm doing it wrong, <laughs> right? Like the, the 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 vision of Christian righteousness is so high, it's so beautiful, it's so holy and majestic that it should make you feel like it's just this incredibly beautiful but impossible mountain to climb. So that's one good feeling. But it also should fill you with great hope, right? Because, why? You've been justified. And so you're in this journey of sanctification and the Spirit is in you, right? And you're being renewed in the spirit of your mind. And so you're making these strides and it should excite you, this incredible journey you're making. And, you know, some people do better at some things than others. You know, don't congratulate yourself on the things that you do well. Maybe that's because of gifts of temperament or personality. Focus on those areas where you're lacking. And, and this is, this is the great challenge of your life. And this is how you should measure yourself. How am I doing in my Christian life? And so, you know, when people say to me, when I say to people all the time, how is your, your Christian life? How is your walk with Christ? People, 95% will give me this answer. They'll give me a report on their devotionals and prayers which is great. That's a huge, important part of your, your Christian life. But rarely do I hear people say, you know what, I'm having difficulty with not using corrupt words, but with using words that build up. Or I'm, I'm having trouble putting away falsehood and not speaking truth to build people up. These are the measurements of your Christian life. And so, how do you do a self-assessment? How am I doing in the Christian life? Paul gives you the rubric right here. Right. Um, Alright, any questions there? We'll move on to Philippians. Alright, Philippians. Philippians is the one of the uh, uh, prison letters where Paul specifically talks about his imprisonment. That is the burning main issue. Um, and he's writing to the Philippian church to encourage them in light of his imprisonment because um, they were it was reasonable that they would be deeply discouraged because of his imprisonment. We'll talk about why that is, but let me read you the passage. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, he's talking about his imprisonment in Rome, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it with uh, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay? So um, let's talk about Paul's imprisonment. This was a huge, significant problem in the early church. So let me try to walk you through that sense. First of all, Paul talks about being, um, what is it, um, imprisoned by the imperial guard. This is the translation. The original Greek says the Praetorian guard. So who are, who are the Praetorian guard? These were the personal bodyguards of, of Julius Caesar. Um, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Roman emperor Caesar. Um, they were the elite crack soldiers of the Roman Empire, the best of the best. 
Um, if you've ever seen Star Wars, um, they have an Imperial Guard, a Praetorian Guard modeled after the concept of Rome. It's those red soldiers, right? They're the best of the best. So that's what you need to think, right? These are hardened, battle-ready veterans of the Roman Empire. Paul, and so Paul's under house arrest. The Roman Empire did not maintain jails. Um, so he was under house arrest, and he was constantly chained to a Praetorian Guard uh, 24 hours a day. He slept with, um, so they would take shifts. He slept with a Praetorian Guard. He would go to the bathroom with the Praetorian Guard. Um, always, anytime he had conversations with anyone, the Praetorian Guard was listening to that conversation. It was dehumanizing. It was demeaning. It was deeply, deeply shameful in that culture to be under arrest. Um, and of course, we can imagine the Praetorian Guards would abuse Paul. They would treat him roughly and mistreat him. He was under constant threat of execution. Not only that, but Paul's ministry was impeded. You have to remember that Paul was probably the greatest evangelist who has ever lived in the history of the church. He could go to any Greek or Roman city, set up shop, immediately just began to go to universities, the marketplace, the Jewish synagogues, just start debating, just start talking. He, he would preach, and then within a year or two, boom, Christian church planted. Then he goes on to the next city. He was just a remarkably effective, powerful evangelist, and he was the principal leader of the Christian movement, and the principal leader of the Christian movement is now jailed, and in the prime of his career, right? He's still a young man, middle-aged man, but still in the prime of his career. Um, and what's amazing about Philippians is not only is Paul not discouraged and feeling defeated, but he's full of joy. Right? Notice how often he says, I rejoice. Yes, and yes, again, I rejoice. He's not afraid of death. Right? He says, live or die, it doesn't matter. And where, what does that tell us? It tells us that his sense of well-being wasn't contingent on his circumstances, where he was, the fact that he was in prison, the fact that he was tied, a chain to a Praetorian guard 24 hours a day, doesn't matter. Where does he get this power to face suffering, setbacks, and failures? So Paul writes Philippians to share that secret. And it's a, it's an, it's a beautiful gift to the church. It's a beautiful gift for all believers in all circumstances so that we can learn his secret. What is his secret? Here's the answer, or here's the beginning of the answer. Just in chapter 1, the answer is, in Christ, everything bad will turn out for good. That's the answer. Everything that is bad that is happening into your life is actually going to turn out for good in the divine providence of God. So where do we see this? First of all, he says, number one, the Praetorian Guard is hearing the gospel. Paul would never have had this opportunity otherwise, never. But now Paul has this captive audience. It's actually the other way around. Um, you have this Praetorian guard chained to the world's most effective evangelist. <laughs> He's constantly talking to them, constantly persuading them. So you have these hardened pagan guards. You know what's happening? They're getting converted one by one. Right? It's remarkable. We know this because in chapter 4, verse 22, Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, what does he say? He says this remarkable line. He says, he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So he's telling us, he's telling the Philippian uh, Christians, there are believers of Christ, there are followers of Christ in Caesar's household. How did that happen? How did members of Caesar's household become um, um, believers? It's through this imprisonment. Paul was converting the Praetorian Guard one by one. And then through the Praetorian Guard and through his imprisonment, he was reaching people in the imperial household as well. 
you know, family members or, or servants or high officials. They were getting converted. Who could have designed it this way, right? The Roman Empire says, aha, the chief evangelist of the Christian movement, we will imprison him, we will muzzle him, aha, we will quash him. All they were doing is they were embedding deep into the very heart of the Roman Empire the most persuasive evangelist who ever lived. So it reminds us of the story of Joseph, right? Joseph went through betrayal, slavery, imprisonment, and then at the end of his of his life, he says it was all for good that God um, that Joseph might rescue his family and the whole world. And so when we look at the story of Paul, when we look at the story of Joseph, it's supposed to deepen our own trust in God and His inscrutable wisdom. Maybe you're going through some kind of significant setback. Is it as severe? Is it as dramatic as Paul being imprisoned? Maybe. But whatever it is, you know God is working it out for the good of his name, the good of his kingdom, and and for your ultimate joy. Doesn't that give you deep trust? You're not in control of your life. God is in control. And the setbacks, the failures, the pain you're experiencing is all for good. Won't you trust him? Secondly, um, Christians are being emboldened to preach the gospel as a result of Paul. Paul's courage inspired others to be courageous. And so here you have this paradoxical paradigm that Christian suffering actually produces great energy and boldness in the church. This has always been the case. One of the uh, famous sayings um, is the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so uh, when believers in Christ, um, for example, for IGC, you know, one of the things I pray for for IGC is a revival. Uh, what I mean by a revival is a deepening of repentance, a deepening of prayer and worship, and this explosive energy of Christian vitality, Christian passion. One of the best ways for that to happen is if one of us were to go to prison for preaching the gospel, right? That would just completely empower the rest of the church. That's what suffering does. So your suffering, your adversity, is actually a gift. When you show courage, when you show patience, when you show um, resilience in the face of that adversity, you show that you're still trusting Christ, still following Him, it actually energizes all of your, everyone around you, everyone who's witnessing and watching you, um, all your Christian friends. So use your suffering for others. Um, Paul says even his personal enemies are advancing the gospel. Um, they they want to inflict personal harm on Paul. Ha ha! Paul, the famous evangelist, so effective, so powerful. He's in jail now. Now we can go and plant churches. Now we can preach the gospel. Paul says, it's all advancing the gospel. It's all advancing the kingdom of God. Notice that this is not in spite of adversity, but because of adversity. Um, it could only happen through adversity. And in the, and in the midst of adversity, there's this ground note of joy. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Christian joy. Joy doesn't mean ignoring the pain, saying, oh, I don't see the pain, I'm only happy, ha, ha, ha. Um, but jo- Christian joy is that um, there's a storm raging around you and you're crying, you're suffering. When Paul was beaten by the Praetorian Guard, he wasn't smiling. Okay? He was crying, you know, he was, in, he was in pain. But it means that there's a ground note of joy sustaining you, holding you. Um, and a good example is this. Um, imagine that... Um, you, you, you get a job. It's the most tedious, tiresome, awful, terrible job you've ever had. Um, but you know that at the end of that job, one year in that job, you will receive a $10 million payout. Okay? And everyone looks at you, and you are truly in agony. You're, 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 your hands are tired. Your back is tired. 
but there's this levity in you. There's this joy in you. There's, you know, and you're walking with this confidence and, and expectation. What's going on? Because you have this $10 million payout. The Christian joy is deeper and greater than a $10 million payout, right? It's the glory of Christ working in your life. Um, and then, verse 21, I think this is amazing. This is Paul's definition of life. He says, to live is Christ. What are you living for? What makes life worth living? Is it circumstances? Is it family? Is it your career? Is it um, public approval? Is it friendships? Is it pleasure? Is it hobbies? All of these things are temporary and passing away and all all of these things are circumstantial meaning they could be taken away from you. But if Christ is your bottom line, if He's the foundation upon which you've built your life, if He's the wellspring of hope, if Christ is what you're living for, then no circumstances can ever take that away. And in fact, suffering and death doesn't diminish your joy in Christ. It enhances, it deepens your joy in Christ. Because what suffering does is suffering takes away the things that you don't need in your life so that you can remember that the one thing you need is Christ. Even death gives you more of Christ because now you're in His arms. Now you're in His presence. No circumstance in this life can diminish, can only deepen and enrich. That's how Paul had resilience. That's why Paul in prison with the Praetorian Guard could say, I rejoice. And then now we understand verse 19 as well. I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and help of the Spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. The word deliverance there is a little bit of an unfortunate translation. Sometimes we think of it as release from prison. Um, but that can't possibly be what he's talking about, because he says, whether I live or die, I, you know, I give glory to Christ. So dying is not deliverance from prison. The word deliverance there is the Greek word um, um, soteria. Soteria is the Greek word for salvation. So he says, this is all for my salvation. He's not talking about uh, temporal release from prison. He's talking about his eternal salvation. You say, wait a minute, Paul, I thought you were saved. Remember? We were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. So he's talking about sanctification and glorification. He's saying that all of this adversity, all this hardship and setbacks, is producing in him this sanctification and glorification. He's being saved. It's for his salvation. Anytime... Whatever God brings into your life was needful for you for your sanctification and glorification. Whatever He withholds, you did not need. And so you're not lacking for anything. Um, Any questions? All right. Let's pray. We'll do Colossians next time. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenging word um, in Philippians um, and in Ephesians. And we just see, just these two little passages, there's an entire universe of, of meaning, of application, of depths and riches. We can go on and on forever and ever and never exhaust, uh, at the bottom of it. And so I pray that that would excite us and make us want to dive in and study more and really study a word. Look at each word. Study, uh, think through the sentences. Consult, uh, commentary. Consult, um, other resources to help us to understand your word. Um, I pray that you would make IGC a people of the word. And I pray for a revival. I pray that we would have deep repentance, deep prayer, and deep righteousness. In Christ's name, amen.